G'day and welcome to the good sources. It's not Q and A, not Q and A. Hashtag not Q and A. Quanda, um, not <laughs> Quanda. A and D. Don't use the hampersand if you're going to use the hashtag. I'm Dave Pello, uh, one of your hosts tonight from the Good Source platform, and joining me also is the right-thinking queen of Twitter, Alexandra Marshall. Welcome to Not Q and A again, Ellie. How are you? I did not realise I was a co-host. Does that mean I have power? Every single good source regular contributor is a co-host and we may have the occasional guest. But uh, well said because um, tonight we do have a couple of great guests coming on just for a short segment each. Uh, and first up in a few minutes we will be talking to the federal leader of the One Nation Party, Pauline Hanson. Uh, so we'll be having a chat to her about the family law court review, which has been happening and anything else in the world of uh, One Nation and, and uh, the nation, Australia. Uh, we'll also be having a chat with Anthony Dillon um, later towards the end of the first hour. Uh, he's an Indigenous um, Anglo uh, academic in Australia, and he's written some pretty good articles and um, memes about the uh, people protesting Australia Day, which is obviously still a very hot topic this week. Um, but Ellie, you posted a, uh, a pretty good article on The Good Source this week talking about the field of false flags. Um, so for everybody's interest, they can jump onto the goodsource.news website and uh, have a look at Ellie's um, article there. But why don't you just uh, recap some of what thoughts you were articulating in that article for us now? Well, first of all, what a great time to have the name One Nation as a party name, considering we are talking about bringing together Australia as one nation during a fracturous time in our history. So what a, what a great topic for today to begin with. Yeah. Um, well, the article, uh, The Field of False Flags, is really about Antifa, which they brand themselves as being you know, anti-fascists, the people who fight communism, but, uh, sorry, the people who fight Nazism, but what they really are, are the original communists. They are the activist youth wing of the Communist Party. And I don't think many of our media commentators really understand the history behind this party and how it is very much alive in the leaders of the activist movement today. They, I mean, they're yep. still running around with Mao and Stalin on their shirts. They haven't left behind their history. So, the article, The Field of False Flags, was about two things. The first was Biden's empty victory via this new uh, digital, uh, new normal age where we are all disconnected from our politicians and from each other, leaving us with basically flags in place of cheering crowds and no way to measure the true uh, pulse of the nation because we're simply, we're not there together as a group. And the second was Antifa's role in that eventuality with the election and how these activist pressure groups are working in uh, combination with social media giants in order to change the narrative of our civilization from a position of a minority group because they are not the they're not the majority but they are able to exert immense power. So that's the that's the premise of the article that I wrote for you guys. Uh, I think it was last week. Yeah, no, it was a, uh, a great article and a great story, and it uh, was very aptly metaphored, illustrated by uh, the field of flags where um, there used to be people for the last presidential inauguration. Um, well, that, just struck me. That, that image struck me because you've got an empty field there, and Biden's mm -hmm. supposed to be the most popular president to ever be elected 
into US history with Trump alone outstripping Obama. And yet they couldn't even manage to host an inauguration, despite the fact that their voters are out on the streets, you know, in their thousands protesting with Black Lives Matter and Antifa. It's a it's an unsettling and unnerving vision to see America in that way. It really was. Uh, one of the hallmarks of Biden's presidency already has been uh, the complete humiliation of Barack Obama and Donald Trump uh, with the sheer quantity of executive orders issued in the first week, ruling by uh, executive fiat. Uh, now, somebody else who's uh, tried that on without anywhere near the level of success Joe Biden has is our own Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Um, arbitrarily and uh, authoritarianly, really, without any wide consultation, deciding we need to change the lyrics to the Australian National Anthem. What's your thought? Is that an abuse of his position? How successful was changing the anthem? I mean, there were no protests whatsoever about Australia Day after (laughs) Scott Morrison changed the anthem. It completely solved the activist problem in this nation. So well done, Scott Morrison. You found the solution to Marxism in Australia. I think, you know, everyone should just change everything now and it'll work. Well, we've certainly achieved reconciliation. There's now no more Aboriginal suffering trauma or uh, grievance politics anywhere to be seen anymore. Uh, I don't know what the media is going to do next Australia Day. Um, Maybe it just didn't have enough time to take hold this year, Alexandra? Oh, oh, definitely. Uh, The time is (laughs) is clearly what our problem is. It's not the monetization of victimhood. That couldn't possibly be the problem that's uh, overtaking the Western world right now. And America has the exact same problem. They're starting to turn victimhood into a money-making operation. So we saw during the Antifa and Black Lives Matter rallies, particularly in Chaz, I don't know if you guys remember the uh, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, which was meant to be the dry run for the Antifa Glorious New Revolution, where the first thing they did was sit everyone down and start demanding taxes based upon race. So it's the same thing in Australia. We saw posts from some of the activists demanding a million dollars for, as they put it, every black person, regardless of situation, circumstance, or any kind of reasoning other than racial logic. So the only way we're going to get past this is if we stop allowing activism to be monetized to the extent that there's no solution because they don't want to solve any of their problems. Because if they do, they'll put themselves out of business. No, that would end the grievance industry altogether very quickly. Look, the effectiveness of that um, executive order from Scott Morrison aside, I I don't know if we can technically call it an executive order, but that is what it is, whether that's its proper name or not. Um, What do you think about his decision, his his thoughts on, on using and exercising that power, A, does he actually have that legal power, and B, should he use it the way he did, effectiveness aside? Well, the problem with the Australian system, which is also its strength depending on who is leading it, is that we are a copy of the Westminster system in that most of our uh, political activities are based upon convention, including many of our laws. So Scott Morrison can and does change things with the authority of being leader of the current ruling party, but that doesn't mean that he's going to get off scot-free, you might say, with his decision, because with the changing of the anthem, not only did he do nothing to make the left happy with him or to stop protest because that's not what they really want. If you read their posts, they say, no justice, no peace, you know, we're going to hate Australia forever. So that's not going to work. What he did do was irritate the blue ribbon base, the people he really desperately needs to put him back in power. 
And for Scott Morrison, who already has a problem of being Turnbull light, he was part of Turnbull's inner circle and more and more people are starting to realise that that actually was the case. He has a, a problem with his conservative identity and the last thing that he needs is to be seen as uh, cuddling up to left-wing Marxist ideology because his base are going to go and find other parties. And unfortunately, that actually won't lead to an election of a conservative minority. What it will do is lead to a Labour victory in the next election. And uh, it's almost as if you can't stop this cycle from happening because the politicians and the Liberals have got it in their heads that if they make the press happy, then somehow they'll get more votes from the left. And it's simply never going to happen. But the, the wets aren't going anywhere. So I wrote a whole piece today in The Spectator about um, the death of basically Menzies' Liberal Party and how mm. Craig Kelly is one of the last remaining figures standing that stands for true liberalism in the Australian sense of the word liberal. Yep, absolutely. Um, the uh, other uh, article that got published today on The Good Source was an excellent piece by Kurt Marlberg. And Kurt joins us now all the way from, I think you're in Sydney now, Kurt. You used to be in Adelaide. How are you this evening? And welcome to the show. I'm doing well, thanks. Yes, that's right. Formerly Adelaide, now Sydney. And it's great to be with you. And what do you think? Uh, Scott Morrison's riding high on the polls. Uh, the grapevine has it. We could be up for a federal election before the end of this year. Uh, this play, this captain's call, if you'd like, the executive order in a very Biden-esque move uh, of changing the lyrics to the national anthem um, somewhat <laughs> arbitrarily um, and perhaps foolishly, what do you think? Does that play to support his re-election chances or is is that um, actually a counterproductive move that he can afford with high polls right now? I'd probably go with the latter. I think from what I've seen of the polling, he's, he's sitting fairly comfortably, so I don't think it's going to affect things too much. But uh, as Ellie was saying, I, I don't think that that decision has, is going to bode well with his, uh, with his blue ribbon base, as you might say. I think I actually had no idea about this decision in the lead up. There was no notice about it. I just, I think I read it on Twitter. It was actually the tweet by Scott Morrison himself. And I just thought, you know, like, why does the leader of a nation just get to tweak um, the lyrics to our national anthem? I thought it was quite bizarre, to be honest. And uh, and I agree with Ellie that, um, you know, pandering to that sort of, that idea is, is only going to get you so far because then it's going to be the next issue. So... I don't, I don't think it's uh, certainly going to help, but given his standing in the polls, I don't think it's going to harm him too much at this stage. Now, uh, somebody was uh, telling me recently um, things I didn't know. Um, it was actually Grant Vandersee, who, who also writes some articles um, on The Good Source, um, and he was explaining how many times the national anthem lyrics have actually changed. Uh, given the history of it, I, I actually don't think... Uh, our, our national pride has suffered a, a mortal wound by by any extent. Um, the original song was uh, slimmed down a lot before it became the the um, national anthem, and there were some other changes there. Can either I could try and scrape my memory, but do either of you know uh, off the top of your head lyrics that have already been changed previously in the national anthem? Well, I don't know the lyrics, but uh, the idea of changing our anthem. Know, we have to remember. Yeah, we have to remember that Australia is a young country as far as being a coherent geopolitical force in the world. 
And so we were changing our anthem because we were new at deciding what we wanted to say and represent as a nation. And then it settled into quite a good, uh, a solid medium for an anthem. We, no, it's not like the French. We're not suggesting we drag people over bloody fields or anything. Like our anthem's pretty good. You've got to remember this yeah. is a thing that we sing on sporting events at the global stage. It's not meant to be, mm. uh, you can't have a too obscure or it won't work. It has to be a bit pompous and a bit, you know, stifled because otherwise it's just not going to stand up at a, at a flagpole in front of, you know, crowds of disinterested people. So yeah. our anthem was pretty good. The reason that we're changing it now is not because it's wrong. It's because we've got a small pressure group of Marxists who hate the entire concept of a nation attempting to chip away at everything that belongs to the idea of a nation. They're after the flag. They're after yeah. our anthem. They're after our basic ideals and laws. So it's you have to view it in context of, the bigger picture of what is actually happening with the activist movement and why it matters that Scott Morrison taking this uh, call without even asking the population, hey, what do you think of eroding this particular part of our nation? So you have to remember that Captain Calls are difficult because you take all the credit, but you also take all the blame. And the Liberal Party decides that it wasn't a good move. They will just cut Scott Morrison and say, oh, that was him, not us, we'll put it back. Yeah. And the same thing happened to Biden. And I I actually remember the lyrics that uh, that we have changed um, in the past, and obviously not in my memory, but um, the lyrics originally were Australian sons or Australia's sons, let us rejoice, uh, for we are young and free. It, it, obviously now Australians all let us rejoice. Uh, so maybe um, we didn't get rid of feminism by uh, degendering the lyrics. Uh, we're not going to get rid of Marxism um, by de-age clarifying um, the content. Yeah, on one hand, we're not young. Our constitution is one of the 10 oldest still surviving operational functional constitutions in the world, which doesn't speak very well for other nations um, that they don't even that's, last that's a That's not century. a good sign. That's not a good no. sign. But uh, <laughs> as far as, as, far as a, a legally constituted nation goes, um, it's true. We're not young. We're one of the oldest um, in our current constitutions, obviously, the way uh, you said it before, Ali was uh, was. Um, uh, I mean, not, not nations like France, nations like France, other... that had heaps of constitutions, even though they've always been a legally constituted nation a lot longer than Australia. So, uh, you talk about France as going back to you know its its previous iterations of its politics. You wouldn't say that France is only from that most recent one. We're talking that, about the appearance of the nation that has power on a yeah. political stage. So that's yeah. sort of how you define the birth of the nation. Yeah, no, no, totally get that. Um, I don't know if you've seen the news, uh, but um, there's been a, a tragic murder in Queensland where a, a uh, dangerous driver, a 17-year-old pea plater, ran over a couple and their pre-born baby killing three living humans. And there's quite a lot of um, political commentary going on. Anastasia Palaszczuk is uh, mad that he was out on bail. Uh, and there's a whole lot of people blaming Anastasia Palaszczuk for being soft on, on youth crime, etc. cetera. Um, what's your thoughts, uh, Kurt? Do you have, uh, are you familiar with the story? Do you, do you have any opinion on who to blame and how do we prevent this kind of thing from, from happening again? No, I haven't actually heard of this particular story, though. I feel like in Queensland a few years ago, something similar did happen. And uh, it was actually something that the pro-life and pro-choice camp had a bit of a um, tussle over because 
in that particular case, the unborn child was considered to be a human under the law, and so therefore it was uh, some sort of manslaughter or murder um, that, that was essentially the charge being brought against the person. Um, whereas, obviously, when it comes to, you know, abortion, we sort of, as a culture, we tend to just dismiss that as though, you know, the pre-born baby is, is not a human. And so that's, that's a case I remember more recently, but no, unfortunately I'm not familiar with this one. Uh, Alexandra, I've got some thoughts, but I, I just want to uh, get everybody else's thoughts first. Um, you know, what's going on? This guy was uh, charged and has been, you know, arrested and charged for dangerous driving. He's then released on bail. Uh, he then drives recklessly, and I don't want to make up details I'm not 100% confident on, but the result is... Um, He's driven so badly again after already being arrested for dangerous driving, he's ended up killing three living humans. Um, what's your thoughts on, you know, is this just uh, the nature of a soft justice system that, you know, can't throw everybody in jail just because they've been charged? Or, or are you familiar with the details, Ali? It's a, well, what you're really asking is, is the criticism of Anastasia Palaszczuk's, uh, her, her stance on crime, yeah, and it's not just Anastasia Palaszczuk's government that has a problem with releasing criminals and not punishing criminals properly because all of Australia's states have a problem with our soft approach to serious crime, which has led to an increase in crime overall. And the United States, which we were talking about before, learned this lesson when they were trying to clean up some of their most violent cities, that the softer you go on crime and the shorter you make the jail sentences and the more you try to rehabilitate violent criminals by releasing them on good behaviour, the more your, your crime skyrockets. But whereas if you actually punish severe crime properly, people get the message. Like, I mean, we learnt this a long time ago in civilization that you punish serious crime seriously and it tends to stop crime from happening. So, yes, it really... It, although Anastasia Palaszczuk is not particularly responsible for this incident her government's approach to crime has led to criminal behaviour um, increasing, particularly as we see now. I mean, I don't know how many of you notice it, but we see dangerous behaviour going unpunished all the time, but there's always a cop out on the road there to basically, as a, a portable ATM, getting people for ever more minor infractions that mm. get that attract fines. And that's the same thing with COVID. They're very happy to fine ordinary people enormous COVID fines, but they're not going to go after serious crime and people are being murdered or broken into that stuff is too hard the activist judges don't want to touch it so we yeah. definitely have an issue with crime in this country and an inability to punish the people who should be punished properly whereas we're punishing basically good citizens for minor infractions extremely severely usually for a, a sort of a tip for the government's budget yeah well, my thought is that I hope that not a single person criticising Anastasia Palaszczuk's soft stance on criminal justice for uh, people under 18 voted Labor. In my mind, the reason that couple is dead tonight is because of Labor voters. You're the idiots that voted for an incompetent government with proven incompetence who are not willing to be tough on crime. They would rather set people on the streets than have jails crowded or, or kids possibly uh, getting the rough end of the stick. Well, I'm sorry, 
if you're going to drive your car like a lethal weapon and use it as such recklessly and irresponsibly you don't deserve freedom you certainly don't deserve a car or a license uh, you darken the door of a car again that thing should be crushed like a can of sardines but it's the it's the labor voters of townsville a town ravaged by youth criminality um, roaming the streets at night it's those morons who still voted for a Labor government to have more of the same, which has resulted in the hands of police being tied and the legislation being inadequate for magistrates to do what they need to do. In my mind, if uh, this is, we're just going to get more and more like this. Uh, Labor voters, again, have blood on their hands tonight. And if that's harsh, well, don't vote Labor. Well, you've seen what the, uh, the Black Lives Matter community are demanding in the US, haven't you? They want to release all criminals from jail. Exactly. All of them. Exactly. That's one of their major demands. Yep. It, it, and th this is just leftism for you. So no leftist, no person who votes left of centre has any business complaining about the results of criminality and, and crime rates in the community. You just have no business blaming the government for doing uh, what you reward them for doing. They go soft on crime, you vote them back in. What do you think is going to happen? Criminals are going to do what criminals do. They don't respect the law. The only thing well, you, you can do is take their liberty off them. You can't say defund the police and then have a hissy fit when Capitol Hill riots come and there's not enough police to stop people from coming in. You can't have it both ways. It's either anarchy or it's not. Yep. yep. It does Completely. seem to me to, uh, David, does seem to me to stem from this idea, I guess, that uh, everyone at, at, at base level is well-intentioned and there's, I guess there's no real sort of moral uh, evil in the heart and it's, you know, we're all reformable. It's, I, I think it's uh, an optimistic but ultimately fatal worldview that leads to this idea that, you know, uh, serious crime doesn't need a serious punishment. And I think that's probably where uh, a lot of the misunderstanding is. It's very Pollyanna-ish. Uh, it definitely is. Look, uh, I've got some bad news for everyone. I have to apologise. Um, the life of a federal party leader and senator uh, can be unpredictable, and Senator Pauline Hanson has had to offer her apologies. She won't be able to be joining us tonight, but I'm sure she will be trying to again maybe next week uh, or very, very soon. Uh, we still have a great guest coming up. But uh, let's talk about the Family Law Court Review uh, that is coming up. Um, it's, uh, I believe it's due at the end of uh, February or March. Um, and uh, that's now been more than a year in the process of, of being done. It was commenced in 2019. Uh, we had all of last year and it'll be well into this year before that review is, is handed down. And of course, the lefties again think it's working wonderfully. They don't want it uh, changed at all. They don't want anything uh, to be upset in the current way that things happen, even though each of the magistrates uh, and judges in the family law court, each of them have hundreds of cases on the go at any one time, um, and some of them ridiculously multiplied hundreds of cases going on there at the time. One of the big things I would like to see changed in the family law court system is the fact that there are perverse incentives for there to be delays and adjournments, uh, games, uh, and all is always going to be in one person's interest um, to to make things go longer and longer and longer. Which, of course, the lawyers are not at all upset about, as they keep to charge more, keep getting chances to charge more and more and more. We see uh, women 
incentivized to take kids away from their fathers because the less time the father has with them, the more money he has to pay to the mother for the care of the children, uh, which he may or may not spend on the children. Uh, and we see all kinds of false accusations uh, without any need for evidence or proof um, to be substantiated and have impacts on the family custody arrangements. Again, weaponizing the children's and, and treating them. I think one of the things I would like to see uh, reformed in the family law form is to see uh, abuse of judicial process brought in uh, to essentially be the same as child abuse, uh, to take kids away from one of their parents, I don't care about the gender, but to take kids away from their parents um, because you're playing silly legal games in the family law court, uh, you know, uh, for kids at any age to be denied access to one parent um, before there's any kind of of, uh, of justice, be, being able to, uh, some objective justice, you know, prejudicially taking a parent away from their kids is devastating to a parent, but absolute abuse of a child's formative years. Uh, Kurt, Alexandra, are there any things you're aware of that uh, are strikingly obvious that need to be changed in the family law court system? Do you want to go first or? You go for it, Ali. All right. Um, there's a reason that they call lawyers vampires and not in the cool sci-fi hot sense, <laughs> in, in the more traditional, uh, less appreciative sense. And that's because when you've got a system that allows money to prolong people's suffering for no other reason than profit of a third party, you've got a problem with the law because the law was designed mm. to solve problems, not to basically be a massive industry for making more money. And once you start abusing civilization's system of law to the point where it's beyond a joke, the law itself starts to fall down. And, I, and a lot of the problems that the family industry has is that not only are cases making to the courts and dragging on forever, but a lot of people who should be in the courts and who need a moderator and a mediator won't go to the courts because they're terrified of what, A, they're broke and they couldn't mm. do it. And so you've got two bad outcomes for a system that should work but isn't because there's, I mean, the law is one of the things that falls under the powers of the state and the state should regulate because it's a basic fundamental principle of a democracy. And yeah. they are not regulating it properly because, let's face it, plenty of politicians are lawyers. So that is my comment so on what happened to the law industry. And this is an opportunity for your viewers to go and read the work of Jonathan Sumption and his book, The Trial, uh, Trials of the State, which is all about the overreach of law and how law can be corrupted into destroying the principles of democracy. And that is destroying the family unit by this profiteering from its misery is one mm. of the problems of our society at the moment. Absolutely. Kurt, have you got any thoughts on... Uh... Uh, possible renovations, improvements to the family law court system in Australia. Yeah, I definitely agree, particularly with what Ellie was picking up on in terms of the uh, incentive of, of money for lawyers. And I think there's actually just a whole lot of layers to it. You mentioned one as well earlier, Dave, in that um, parents, like you said, could be either gender weaponizing their children against the other partner in the marriage. And, and so there's multiple layers. There's revenge, there's uh, financial profits for the third party um, groups. And so I think th there's just a whole lot of issues that need to be looked at. And uh, I mean, I, I, probably don't have too much expertise in this area, but I think anything that can incentivize 
courts to deal with uh, problems as soon as possible and also to somehow prevent uh, one spouse from weaponizing children against the other, I think is a move in the right direction. I'd, I'd love to see a, a priority put on kids that's absent right now. Uh, the, the love of justice, um, you know, we, we talk about um, it, it's better to set 10 guilty men free then it's an old it's an old principle in philosophy of law that it's better to send ten guilty set ten guilty men free than to convict and punish an innocent man wrongly. Uh, well, I think we need that kind of burden on protecting kids. That it would be better to let some injustice or, or hasty things happen rather than you know let some kids go perhaps years uh, without without being uh, having access to their par parents denied by the arbitrary actions and decisions of of one of the parents that that should be that should be criminal for a parent to preempt a, a court's decision well let's let's yeah. be real the politicization of the family court system happened for a good reason originally and that was that women in it's why it's a gendered issue in the family courts women were victimized by violent men and everyone knows that men and women have similar problems but as a statistical uh, majority women were suffering under violent marriages and they were financially dependent on their husbands when this whole thing started so yeah and decades ago that was uh, a very real concern you're right yeah and that had to be addressed the problem is of mm. course that as politics changed underneath this pretty solid first principle we now mm. have women turning that presumption of the courts trying to genuinely help what is a physical and emotional and financial imbalance into what you correctly call as a weapon. And so instead of there being some kind of common sense and judges who sit down and correctly view the situation as two equals coming to a table and trying to assess if someone's in real danger or if this is perhaps um, a, a money-making exercise or a punishment exercise, we've now got a blind sight of ideology which only punishes men and only empowers women regardless of their behavior but at the same time still manages to set free violent offenders who then go and attack women so we've actually got the worst of both possible scenarios happening at the moment mm, definitely um ellie uh let's put you on full screen hold your cup up to the uh camera and tell viewers where they can get it. A and P McRobert wants to know what it says. It says, "Dear ABC, go fund yourselves," which is a hashtag that I a protest hashtag <laughs> that I started against the ABC of maybe last year or the year before when they started their little witch hunt of the free press. So this yeah. mug and this hashtag uh, goes to funding my writing so that I can keep writing for you against the legacy government-powered press. And you can, the find the link my, you can find the link on my blog. I think you're going to put the link up for me as well. It comes in pink for the girls and red for the boys or whatever you <laughs> want to mix it up. It's fine by me. Um, I also have like, Are you gender stereotyping us? Pardon? Are you gender stereotyping us? A absolutely. Although the reason <laughs> it's pink is because I just I love pink. That's why it's in pink. It's an Ellie pink. But it also comes in red to uh, to sort of uh, pin the communist ABC right to their target. So please pick one up um, and uh, we can join the whole little club of, you know, defund the ABC, uh, which uh, have way too much power over our current media environment. And so can we get that on your blog, did you say? 
yeah, I have a link on my Twitter, but I'll put it up again during okay, uh, in, in this one and I'll give it to you so that you can put it up. Yeah, we'll put that in the link beneath the video for everybody. All now, Kurt, uh, scene, scene where uh, supporting independent writers, uh, Kurt, why don't you tell us about your the book? book. Um, there's a great opportunity to go to Kurt's blog where there's lots of great writing. I'm uh, proud to feature some of his articles on The Good Source, uh, only the best, of course, but all of his great writing is available at his blog and he's just released a book which you can also buy to support him over a thousand copies sold already going gangbusters uh called cross and culture tell us all about the arc of the book uh there kurt and um why somebody would want to read that yeah so i've been blogging for around about five or six years and in in some ways this book is a culmination of, of a whole range of different uh topics that I've brought together. Uh, it's almost all new material, but it, it sort of covers the, the content that I've been working on for that time. And essentially, I've asked the question, can Jesus save the West? And when I started writing this two years ago, the idea of the West needing to be saved was perhaps bubbling under the surface for some, but was not so obvious to the majority. Uh, but here we are after COVID, here we are after race riots, after a lot of turmoil, a lot of issues, political polarization, like we haven't seen um, in probably generations. And uh, it seems like a more pertinent question than ever, can Jesus save the West? And so essentially what I'm doing in this book is three things I'm looking at. What are the Christian foundations of nations like Australia? Uh, I think we've all been sort of um, lulled into a sense of, well, well, secular is best, and if you cast aside religion, you cast aside superstition, then, then we can finally advance and progress. But, in fact, there's a Christian foundation to almost everything that we appreciate about our lives here in the West, whether that's freedom, democracy, compassion, human rights, even science uh, has very strongly Christian foundations. So that's the first thing I'm trying to do. The second thing I'm doing is explaining what happens when we abandon that Christian foundation. And um, I guess conservatives are generally fairly well tuned into this, um, into these concerns. When we abandon uh, objective morality, when we abandon uh, spiritual understanding and truth, um, then we end up with moral chaos. And so I, I really dive into that issue. And then finally, I uh, more in, in terms of answering the subtitle of the book, I ask what is it as, as believers that we can do in, uh, in these really interesting times we find ourselves in to be able to make a difference and see our uh, societies restored and see um, morality return and see belief in God um, start to impact some of these issues. So... That's a really quick snapshot of the book. Um, and, yeah, um, I encourage you to grab a copy, Cross and Culture, Can Jesus Save the West? That's at my blog. Um, if you just Google my name, Kurt, um, my surname is a bit difficult to spell, but Kurt and then Cross and Culture book, uh, you should find it pretty easily. And, um, yeah, I think a 1,000 copies have sold in the, in the last two months since it's been published. So it's gone really well. Um, encourage you to jump on there and, and have a look. Asked on the way to becoming the New York Times bestseller. <laughs> one day maybe thanks so much ellie yeah i'm trying to get my book out at the moment and it's very it, it's such a learning curve to try and you know publish something yourself it's a real i've got one called twitterati and it's just it's taking all of my time yeah yeah it was huge wow. it was a two-year journey and uh the last six months of that was almost all consuming so i feel your pain well <laughs> also joining us, uh... sorry, oh, sorry? i've just reblogged that link for you guys so it is on twitter now Brilliant. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, now, also joining us uh, tonight is Damien Curry, a uh, great podcast that's also featured on The Good Source and uh, now also made in 
in um, video format as well. Sorry, mental blank words, hard. Beautiful uh, word. <laughs> that's right. So, so welcome, Damien. Hi, guys. Hi, how are you, David? Yeah, this video thing is quite challenging. I've got to tell you, it's a whole different universe for me as a radio guy. So <laughs> I, I did work uh, in television briefly, but yeah, it's tough. Now, uh, yeah. were you one of the uh, 327 people who reviewed Cross and Culture for Kurt? No, absolutely not. But I, <laughs> I definitely want to read Kurt's book. I absolutely do. It's good to see you again, Kurt. Hi, Ellie. Um, Likewise, good to see you. Yeah. It is very good. Uh, I'll tell you what, you've got a good review from John Dixon, Kurt. What was that? Sorry, Dave. You got a good review from John Dixon. I saw you oh. share that and I saw him share it. Uh, it was a, a very, very sincere and genuine endorsement from yes. a uh, left of center Christian. Mm, yeah, I was very heartened by that. He had a couple of caveats in there, which we'd actually spoken about in private before he sent the endorsement through, but I was extremely uh, grateful for him to endorse it um, as wholeheartedly it as he did. It actually makes it all the more genuine, doesn't it? It does, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Damien, yeah, your show released this morning on The Good Source um, is, uh, is just fantastic. You've done some excellent research and um, commentary really on the current situation uh, which really was is highlighted at this time of year every year and mm. that is the uh, the trauma and suffering of indigenous Australians yeah and I think um, what what's uh, what's what's good about what you'll see in the podcast um, I've, I've just taken a clip from a really good interview between Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine, who are two yeah. uh, more more liberal centre-right um, Aboriginal elders and Aboriginal uh, leaders in our community um, who take a pretty good, um, uh, have a pretty good uh, perspective on things, and particularly Warren Mundine's written uh, a report called It's the Economy Stupid. This is the only way to close the gap is to really help yes. there be a viable economy in mm. uh, Aboriginal communities around Australia and provide the... Um, Provide the circumstances for that to happen, um, but we've got to we've got to um, uh, I think you know move in that direction because the approach that we're taking with um, the welfare state mentality, um, surprise surprise, isn't working. So yeah, no surprise. Now Warren um, Warren has uh, a great deal of his own business experience um, very successfully, mm. uh, and he's also had a great deal of experience in in helping Indigenous Australians. Uh, run and and support their businesses uh, with various government policies. It would be great to see him be able to get his hands and some some sensible street smarts street smarts into uh, the wheels of bureaucracy that are currently yeah. trying to help and not really changing very much at all. No, well, I think we've reached the point when you've got a, that sort of volume of money going in, mm -hmm. it's $33 billion, according to the Productivity Commission report from 2017, um, which represents uh, $44,000 of government expenditure for every uh, Indigenous Australian, assuming there are 850,000 roughly Indigenous Australians at the moment. Um, and that's double government expenditure for uh, non-Indigenous Australians at about $22,000 per person per year. So we're talking about a significant amount of money. Um, two thirds of that is for the uh, delivery of the regular government services like Medicare and unemployment benefits and, and you know family benefits and things like that. So um, that's two thirds of it. Uh, 
the uh, there's another 18% which is related to the additional costs of um, delivery services in remote areas because it does cost more to deliver services in remote areas. Mm. And then there's 18% which is um, uh, purely for our Indigenous uh, uh, programs. So that would represent about probably, uh, you know, what is that, 18%, uh, say, say you know, a fifth of the, of the total amount. So about $6 million that's in, um, you know, programs just specifically for uh, Indigenous Australians on top of the, the higher use of the other programs. Um, so yeah. it is, you know, it's double the spending um, of, of non on non-Indigenous Australians by government. It's an enormous amount of money and we are seeing the results. We're seeing an industry that's formed um, and as welfare does, unfortunately, it can, you know, promote inactivity um, and without productive work or without a sense of purpose uh, that comes from that, um, then, you know, really your physical, your spiritual health, everything declines, your mental health. Um, yeah. and, and now we've got this generational problem where the situation has been through many generations. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's really tough. Well, uh, joining us now from Sydney is uh, academic and writer Dr. Anthony Dillon. Uh, Anthony, it's uh, fantastic to have you join the panel tonight. Welcome to The Good Source, not Q&A. Okay. Looks like I'm, I'm in some good company there. I'm a, um, which uh, my my uh, monitor is going a little bit slow. So, um, Anthony, um, thanks for joining us tonight, and and just jumping straight in with the conversation that's already going. Um, you've heard Damien's uh, thoughts and his research on, on the, I guess the the double portion uh, per person that Indigenous Australians um, on average receive from federal government funding um, as opposed to non-Indigenous Australians. Is that a fair way to measure and, and assess the allocation of, of funds? Is that a, a reliable number to, I guess, be weighing? Double. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, the in, well, Damien, just... Um, Recapsulate that again for us. Yeah, Recap so, uh, well, that's the, $22,000 per head uh, for non-Indigenous Australians, the amount of government funding that's that's spent. And then for uh, Indigenous Australians, it's $44,000 a head. And that's um, totals $33 billion a year. But that includes government funding for regular services. So uh, it's a direct comparison of the two. And obviously there's greater need. And some of that is um, relates to the... Uh, remote the cost of delivery of remote services um, and some of that is direct um, you know small proportion is di the direct 18 uh, percent I think is the direct Aboriginal services that are that are specifically for um, indigenous Australians only yeah that's interesting your, yeah, your thoughts on the usefulness of those those numbers Anthony yeah look you know obviously that there's a greater need there so I, I personally don't have a problem with more money in principle being allocated, but I'm sure most people would agree that how it's spent is the problem and what it's spent on. Exactly. And the other thing, um, it was good that it was mentioned about remote areas. Mm. And Nicholas Rothwell wrote an article in The Australian about a decade ago, and he summed it up so well. And he, he, was, he got the idea from Tony Abbott, 
actually, where he said it's about place, not race. So it's not so mm. much being Aboriginal, it's being living in these remote communities. That's the problem. So the point I want to make is you can't just see homogenous people as an, uh, uh, sorry, Aboriginal people as an homogenous group. Yeah, agreed. All equal disadvantage. We, we've got people like me, you know, that is, you know, leading a, a good life, good life in the sense that I know where I'm sleeping tonight. I know where my next meal is coming from. I don't have to worry about whether I'm going to be bashed or robbed or anything like that. And then you've got many other Indigenous people at the other end of the spectrum, and you know, the, the money isn't reaching them in a proportionate way. So I think we need to be smarter. How we, how we spend money. And yes, look, the other thing to realise is money is wasted in the system for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. So, um, you know, a lot of money gets wasted for non-Indigenous people in the bureaucracy and hmm. all that sort of thing. Well, but, yeah, but with Indigenous people, you, I don't think you can afford to waste a cent. Um, you know, so we want to get as much of that dollar, you know, every dollar, we want to get as much of it going directly towards helping those Indigenous people who are most disadvantaged. And that is, generally speaking, in the remote areas. That's, How do you think... Uh, uh, sorry, you weren't finished? Oh, I was just going to say, did that answer... Did I answer your question? Um, yeah, yeah, I think um, I think it's a very good point. Like, I... I uh, I, I take it. I take the point that there's um, double the amount being spent on on Indigenous Australians than non-Indigenous Australians, um, and I'm not sure if I'm meant to be shocked by that, or or if if there is a good explanation which provides some context to that. Uh, and and uh, as Damien said, um, the the tyranny of distance and remoteness quite often explains a, a lot of the cost of delivery. Um, and I'm surprised that only 18% of, of that total um, is specific. Um, how did you phrase that? Specific to being Indigenous, Damien? No, just specific to programs that are designed for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians and not, not designed for non-Indigenous Australians. So it's 18% of the $33 billion that's specifically programs for uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and it's 18%, which is the cost of delivering normal programs and those other programs to uh, remote Australia. Uh, and then the other 60, um, 64%, uh, so almost two thirds, is the uh, cost of delivering the regular government services um, to Aboriginal Australia. So if you're saying, you know, Aboriginal, Aboriginal Australians are getting special treatment because they have all these special programs, you can't say that's $33 billion, right? It's only 18% right. of that $33 billion that goes to Aboriginal Australia as a special thing uh, for special programs for, you know, uh, positive discrimination programs to for, for advancement. Um, the the uh, 64% um, is, is a, you know, it works out to be... Uh, in dollar terms, a larger amount, obviously, at the end of the day, um, than than mm. is going to the average non-Indigenous Australian. So yes, there are more Indigenous Australians reliant upon um, these government funding, the normal regular government. Um, uh, yeah, welfare. and that's so. and that's a good point too. Um, the average non-Indigenous person would be um, the beneficiary of economies of scale, uh, where it's a lot cheaper to not not just because of not yeah. just because proximity to services 
but because of volume of services delivered. There's, yeah, there's perhaps, great. yeah. Yeah, there could be that component to it as well. So yeah. I was looking around the world to see, you know, just what other government levels of expense. That's that's total government expenditure when we say $33 billion, um, mm. And that would, uh, you know, it's forty represents $44,000 uh, per Aboriginal person if there's about 850,000 Aboriginal people. And then you've got... Um, uh, the rest of the population government expenditure would be about twenty-two thousand uh, per person. So, um, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a dangerous thing to say. Yes, it's exactly you know we're spending double on on Aboriginal Australians when there's a multitude of reasons for that. Yeah. Um, and I'm not suggesting that these programs shouldn't exist. All I'm saying is that you know Australia is a country that's quite generous to. Uh, it's Indigenous people. We like our Indigenous people. We want our Indigenous people to do well. Cool. We, I, I've never met anybody on the left or right of politics um, that's 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 a racist or that that would would wish ill on our Indigenous people on the basis of race. Yet we've got these claims of systemic racism, you know, and that I think has to mm. stop if we're going to solve this problem and we're going to um, be able to really come together. Um, yeah. But I guess we've, you know, a lot of people have been saying that for many years. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Anthony would know a lot more about that than I would. Anthony, uh, uh, another pointy question for you is: um, How do you think we could spend the money better? Um, how do you think the the money is being wasted, and and what's the right way? The right way to invest uh, and supervise and monitor the the usage of that money. Um, I'm sure there's no silver bullet. There's there's not going to be an easy answer. But what are some of the thoughts you've got about? Um, the good ways we should be spending that money, which we aren't currently. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess there's the first one I said, um, and that is don't just do it on the basis of your Aboriginal, but rather uh, where the most disadvantaged uh, Aboriginal people are. And I'll just read from this article that I had mentioned before by Nicholas Rothwell. When Tony Abbott outlined his blueprint for Indigenous affairs, he broke new ground by highlighting the distinction between remote and urban Aboriginal societies, their circumstances, and their needs. In a few words, his speech challenged the chief fantasy that shapes national policy on Indigenous affairs, the notion that all Australians who identify as Aboriginal belong to a single community of interest and should be included in the same measures of progress and well-being. So, you know, straight away we can see that let's... Um, I guess another way of putting it is we need to close the internal gap, or what I call the internal gap, and that is the gap between people... Indigenous people like myself and those that are living in remote communities doing it really tough. So forget about this closing the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Let's focus on closing the gap within the Indigenous group between the well-off like myself and the, the less well-off Indigenous people. So the, that, sounds, um, that sounds impossible, Anthony. Um, that, that sounds like uh, forced equality, which is the greatest form of inequality. I mean, there's there's going to be obviously unclosable gaps between somebody. Sure, who... but I think you know what I mean. I think you know what I mean. Uh, if we could get a majority or many Indigenous people who are, are living in squalor, conditions like we couldn't imagine, if we could, right, you know, get them leading a life where parents are working, they're in school, they live in safe homes, that sort of thing, that, you know, may not close that gap, gap completely, but at least brings it up from the, you know, the living in squalor up to something reasonable. Um, then the other thing is money should be invested in, uh, remote areas need to be looked at carefully 
And if they if they are not economically sustainable, then we shouldn't be investing money that keeps the people there and just keeps them existing. Mm. But should invest in a sensible and sensitive exit strategy. Um, well. That is contentious, and and Tony Abbott did some things along those those steps, which I remember he was being slammed and pilloried by by the usual suspects for. Um, but you know the reality is those communities weren't being closed; they just weren't being subsidised any longer. Uh, exactly, and nobody was being forcefully relocated. We were just saying, look, we're we're not going to pay a million dollars to run a water pipe. Uh, or, or whatever. I mean, million dollars might not be very much. It might be a, an Austin Powers scenario. It might have been a hundred billion dollars to run a water pipe um, out to to you know provide water for seven people and a dog. Um, you know and that that's point. just not a good use of of taxpayer money. Alexandra, jump in. Yeah, just before we move on to the next topic, um, I've never been a fan of nor endorsed race based welfare systems in general. I think if we focus on need-based welfare systems, it will automatically pick up those communities, particularly remote communities, who are, of course, the most needy in that system in general, regardless of people's ethnicity. And that should help to pick up both the the, the, the kids who fall through the cracks because their ethnicity doesn't match what the state wants to fund, and also to stop wasting money on people who are in better-off areas and so it can go to those who are the most disadvantaged. And so... The idea that we continue to pour money in based upon race, I think it's not really a solution that's ever worked in general. It seems to be making the system worse, whereas if we focus on helping any Australian who is most in need and then working our way back from there, I think we'll have a lot better luck with a fairer system and also a more productive system for everybody involved, including the remote communities who are by definition the most in need. Yeah. Is that um, what you were sort of alluding to, uh, Anthony? Is that, I mean, do you yeah. do you feel, uh, or could you explain for those of us who are not Indigenous if there is a is a reason why we, we should probably pursue, um, you know, a different approach with the Indigenous community, what that is, so we could understand it better? Well, I was just going to follow up uh, what Alexandria, is that, sorry, did I get the name yeah. right? Alexandria? Yeah. Uh, what you actually said is a good idea. It will possibly upset a few people who have made nice empires for themselves, cultural <laughs> empires, in being the the cultural experts. So that's one thing to consider. And I have no problem with upsetting those people. Most of them are not right. indigenous, are they? <laughs> well, a lot of them are indigenous. Okay, sorry. And yeah, I know I've, you uh, I've I've described it before. It's a bit like the butcher who has his hand on the meat when he's weighing, you know, on the scale when he's weighing your meat. There's a, a vested interest in there, yeah. please. Um, yeah, for, for sure, I agree with that. Um, and so, yes, you get these cultural experts that insist that, oh, if it's Aboriginal, anything Aboriginal, it, it, they have a completely different worldview. They have a completely different way of thinking. And you need us because we're the cultural experts and we understand them. And so we need to look after the services, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, for a small minority of Indigenous people, especially where uh, English is not their first language, sure, there are some cultural um, differences there. I won't say barriers, just differences where mm. um, some understanding is needed. However, the, for the vast majority of Indigenous people, 
And I've been with them even in remote communities. Gosh, they're just like you and I in, in so many ways. Okay, They have the same basic needs and um, but they, they think like us. Um, they joke like us. They get along with non-Indigenous people. So I think while there is a, a need for some cultural expertise, that I think that's been exploited and you got too many people who take their cut and insist that they're the only ones who can look after Indigenous people. Hence why you see this this call for a voice. Okay, I think that's founded mm -hmm. on the that Indigenous people um, are so vastly different to non-Indigenous people that, you know, the mainstream system couldn't possibly understand them and therefore we've got to have this Indigenous voice, whatever that means. Yeah. Represent. Uh, again, it assumes a homogenised nature of Indigenous thought. Um, which is simply offensive. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. What, what's lost in this is I see, because I'm rural, I see lots of kids in these rural areas where some people, of, of, of their Aboriginal, they are looked after on the welfare systems and if they're poor kids of farmers who have literally nothing, they're completely ignored by the government because they don't fit the identity boxes and we shouldn't be leaving any Australians behind. That's why if we focus on need, those who really do need to be assisted will be instead of focusing mm. on identities and the correct cultural boxes. That's not a good way to run a welfare system if your object is to help as many people as possible and to lift the general standard up for everyone. And then you've got the opposite problem with um, black kids who aren't getting the intervention and support that they need when they're in toxic and abusive situations because those charged with the care of children are afraid of being accused of another stolen generation. And so white kids will, will get the protection and intervention they need when they're being abused by, by close family and, and domestic violence um, situations. But black kids just get that little bit extra delay because there needs to be uh, absolute confidence and proof that they're not going to end up in the media for trying to protect a kid all of which yeah. stems from this ideology of race before need. And that is uh, such a, a terrible, uh, mm. insidious ideology to be inside the government systems, which are supposed to work for everybody equally as individuals. Yep. Can I throw another That's question in I there, Dave? Sorry, Anthony, you go. Oh, no, I just wanted to say, and I think um, Rothwell, the, the writer of the Australian article, and Abbott, their view of it's about place, not race, approximates what you're saying it's not you know not doesn't it's not a perfect sorter but you know mm. focus rather than race um you'll allocate money more where it's needed mm. yeah go ahead kurt yeah i mean I, I really like what anthony said about um place not race i think that's really important and also um just the the fact that a lot of these communities are remote and that the need is greater so in principle spending a lot more on indigenous australians is not something i'm against i you know i don't have a strong opinion on one way or the other, but one question that could be asked is, at the end of the day, is finances or is, is money actually what's needed to solve some of the deeper issues? Obviously, it's going to go a long way for health, for uh, crime, for all sorts of um, issues, but uh, it's not going to get us all the way there to resolve some of the more entrenched problems that um, are a concern. So I've got friends who um, have lived on Aborig in Aboriginal communities and I also, um, you know, I read a fair bit in the media about some of the, the, the problems. Domestic violence has been mentioned and sexual abuse and uh, suicide rates and health. Um, I know that 
money is going to help in some ways, but are, are there non-material, non-monetary ways that uh, some of these problems can be resolved? I'd, I'd just be interested to hear everyone's thoughts, and particularly Anthony. Great question. Anthony. Yeah, um, like you said, you certainly need money, but uh, as for the other non-monetary things, um, I think the ideology of promoting this whole idea that if you're Indigenous, you are so vastly different to non-Indigenous. And, of mm. course, you know, we see this problem where mm -hmm. it mean you've got that much Indigenous ancestry in you uh, and, therefore, you're, you're almost like a different species. So I think that's got to end, okay? And yep. we still celebrate our, our oneness and our unity and recognise that there are some cultural differences. But they're, mm. you know, down on the hierarchy, Um or is that up? I'm not sure. But, you know, what I mean, we should be celebrating our commonality. And all programs yeah. um, that are intended to help Australians, particularly Indigenous people, should start with the assumption and end with the assumption that the commonalities between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people far outweigh the differences. Mm. So yeah. uh, get our minds around that one, and I think that will be a really good way to go. And I just want to em emphasise... I'm not trying to throw everyone into the same basket and say, you know, the whole of Australia is homogenous. Great, celebrate your culture and that sort of thing. But remember, at the end of the day, the basic needs um, for both groups are the same. And one of my favourite um, philosophers, Anthony DeMello, said, you know, we've all got a thin exterior of culture. Just scrape off the culture and we're all the same. We all have the same yeah. problems, the same needs. Interesting. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Anthony, tell us a little bit about the uh, article you had published on news.com.au uh, on Australia Day. Okay, uh, well, a couple of years, I've, I've been writing on Australia Day for nearly a decade and last year I decided I'm, I'm not going to write anymore in case I, unless I get asked to do so. I think because I felt I've, I've said enough already. And I was asked to write this article, I was asked to be invited. And I've said, you know, stuff similar to what I've said before, and that is basically I stayed up front. I'm not in favour of changing the date. And the opposition you get to that is, well, it's been changed many times before, and to me that's not a good reason for changing it again. And the, I guess the other biggie you get is, well, you know, what would it hurt? How would it hurt to change it anyway? It'll make a lot of other, you know, Indigenous people happy. And I think the biggest problem with that is, first of all, I do not believe the day or the celebration of the day upsets anyone. And to try and convince an Aboriginal person that you must be upset or you must be mourning or you must feel oppressed on 26th of January is very disempowering. Yeah. So on Australia Day, nobody is celebrating theft or genocide. Of course, yeah. You know, we're celebrating that Australia is a, a great country. Okay? And, yes, you know, certain events happen, you know, on 26th of January, um, just like it did in 1949 when we became, um, you know, the Citizenship Act or whatever it was, was called. So I'm very opposed to telling people we must change it because it hurts Aboriginal people and if we change it, it'll stop hurting them. That will just reinforce in the, the Indigenous person's mind, oh, I really must be upset. Australia Day really must upset me. 
or else the government wouldn't change it. So that's where mm -hmm. we've got to be careful. Does that argument make sense? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of sense. <clears throat> yeah, I think I think um the main point I want to make. Um and just, just one other point on that, something I didn't write about. I see ABC got into a little bit of trouble where they, they used the term Invasion Day and mm. they were asked not to. I I personally didn't think that was a good move for government to intervene only because if you try and tell the ABC they cannot use the Invasion Day, the protesters and the blacktivists will see that as further evidence of oppression, you know. Um, so I would have just let them, you know, say, look, call it whatever you want. We know that with the ABC, they've, they've got a low bar to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So by telling them you can't say it just means that people are going to say it even more. Yeah, it's true. Well, let's ask the uh, viewers, what do you think? Uh, should the government have stepped in and told the ABC to fix their inaccurate headline, which had Australia Day slash Invasion Day on their website? Uh, so, viewers, leave a comment um, beneath the video now on Facebook or YouTube, wherever you're watching this, and tell us, uh, should the government have stepped in or should the government have just let them do what they want uh, because of, of an reasons Anthony, Anthony said? Um, and, uh, yeah, of course, we know uh, that the lying harlot media um, can't be trusted to report accurately, which is why you need to support the good source. You can help us fight fake news by becoming a partner um, with a supporter just to help us continue production of shows like this and uh, the other ones that are being released every day on the Good Source uh, website, goodsource.news. Also, make sure that you head over there and become a subscriber to the email newsletter. If you do that, you are guaranteed to not be cut off from us when, not if we get kicked off the uh, corporate social media channels. Uh, so what we're trying to do is disrupt the mainstream media and provide a objective and honest and transparent source of news and opinions. We won't call uh, our opinions news and we won't call, um, you know, uh, use euphemisms that the left do for all kinds of obfuscation of reality. Uh, it's very important that uh, we be honest about that. And so, if you want a reliable source of news and opinions, then please put your hand in your pocket and become a monthly supporter of The Good Source. Um, so what comments do we have already? I just need to take that banner off. Um, <laughs> Mama says the government should defund the ABC uh, and AMP McRoberts say that the ABC should provide all sides of an issue. <coughs> Very true. And, uh, and very clear, of course. Uh, let's go to the, the panel. What do you guys think? Uh, should um, the government have stepped in, the minister um, ask them to provide a more accurate, accurate headline? Alexandra, what do you think? Well, it depends on whether they want to be known as a government news organisation that is fair and balanced and adhering to its charter or whether they want to be a propaganda arm of a Marxist revolutionary movement. And uh, they're welcome to be either of those things, but uh, the second one doesn't come with public funding. So it's up to them what they want to identify as. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Damien, what do you think? Was the, obviously the substance of the government's criticism, uh, I think most of us would agree was uh, fair, if not understated, um, but was it wise and prudent to step in or should they have 
let the ABC do their craziness as they always do. The idea that the government has no right, the elected government that is elected by us democratically, that's supposed to represent the people of Australia, the idea that the government has no right to comment on what the ABC is doing or instruct the ABC to do certain things uh, is a myth. And it's a myth perpetuated by um, media scholars who have a particularly bizarre view of the role of the ABC and the charter of the ABC. Government mm -hmm. interference is when the government, uh, you know, is instructing for political reasons, very specific political reasons, uh, the ABC to do something. But if the government is saying to the ABC, look, these things that you're doing are inappropriate um, or are sowing division in our society, um, who else is the ABC accountable to if not the government? And mm. that's what frustrates me about the ABC. They're not accountable to the free market, so they can do whatever they like. That's the you problem. Always, you will always. Uh, mm. You can tell I'm passionate about this because I'm a I'm a fire up, Damien. I'm Come a former on. ABC employee, and I'm particularly interested in the media industry. Um, <laughs> but we are in. We have a ridiculous situation because yeah. um, you've got the ABC is culturally. Any organisation is going to develop a culture, right? And anybody who works in that organisation is either going to fit that culture and stay or not fit that culture and leave, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you don't have people at the top of the culture saying, we've got to stick to our charter, we've got to drive for balance in our reporting, we've got to look at the, the scope of Australian uh, opinion and we've got to fall somewhere in the middle and try to take in... Uh, opinion from all sides and we have to challenge underlying assumptions which they never do it's not what the abc reports it's what they don't report it's what, oh, what right. they say on q a or the drum it's what they don't say on q a on the drum someone comes on with a far left neo-marxist identity politics woke cultural whatever you want to call it uh but a left 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 or left left of center view and they and they make outrageous statements and assumptions that are based on the assumptions of critical race theory or critical gender theory and nobody says, hang on a moment, that's critical race theory or that's critical gender theory, let's challenge that. Um, here's Anthony Dillon to challenge that for you or here's Warren Mundine to challenge that or Jacinta Price to challenge No, it just goes through to the keeper as if it's fact and that is what changes the culture externally. Internally, it then becomes very difficult if you're in the ABC uh, to stay there if you have views like mine. So I would never be able to work at the ABC, even if I, they'd give me a job, which they wouldn't. I'd never get in the door, but if I did get in the door, I couldn't stay in the door. And and this is where we're at. So if the ABC is not accountable to the marketplace because it's government-funded, who is it accountable mm. to? Okay, yep. It can't just be accountable to itself because that's a billion-dollar government taxpayer-funded gift to people who think like Kerry O'Brien and Quinton Dempster. Okay, mm. and I'm not comfortable with that. Because Damien. I have different views to Kerry O'Brien and Quinton Dempster, and I'd like to be able to express them uh, and and get paid like they do for it. But you know, I won't I won't Damien, uh, Damien, cry Damien. too much because I've had a very uh, happy, uh, successful career in life, and I'm, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm very fortunate and very. And that's why I try to give back by doing my show. But I'm not getting paid for it, and uh, it's costing me money. So you know, how is that fair, right? The, uh, yeah. the government should have taken the ABC down to 18C for racial, uh, stirring people <laughs> and racial unrest, and that would have been quite a beautiful thing to behold. Well, I think the only way to solve these problems is to tie them up in their own knots, you know, and I think that's, that's uh, 
you know, you've got to uh, take the the woke stuff and 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 use it um, against them if you like. You know, their own yeah. rules against them. Absolutely brilliant. Well, we saw the ABC conduct a witch hunt against George Pell, uh, very prejudicially reaching conclusions uh, well beyond um, the evidence, which seven high court justices to zero decided uh, was so uh, preposterous that uh, he should never, ever be tried again for those ridiculous charges and, and accusations, uh, given the lack of evidence and, and plausible testimony uh, against him. And uh, Likewise, Michael Rowland this morning tweeted uh, something about how terrible it was um, that the government should not be pulling aside um, or, or pulling into line those members of the parliament which disagree, um, such as George Christensen uh, and, and Craig Kelly. Um, and I suggested to Michael Rowland that he might want to, um, as a journalist, uh, interview the scientists and experts which dissent with the chief medical officer. Uh, he hasn't responded to my suggestion just yet. Uh, but, Kurt, what do you think? Um, power and authority questions aside, was it prudent for the government um, to step into that uh, flagrantly um, racist headline uh, calling uh, Australia Day also Invasion Day? Look, I probably would hedge my bets and say uh, I, I don't think either way uh, is, is really going to be a game changer because, as we've been talking about, the issues with the ABC are a lot more fundamental than one particular headline. Um, I, I think, like uh, Damien was saying, uh, the government has every right to step in and, and say what they did. Um, was it wise? Was it helpful? I mean, I, 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 I agree with Anthony that, that um, you know, that could just kind of give bait to the neo-Marxists. So I don't really see a resolution on this particular issue, but I think maybe the best solution is that we just go out and buy one of Ellie's mugs and tell the ABC to go fund themselves. That, that would be wonderful. Anthony, before we let you go, um, your thoughts on the anti-competitive nature of the ABC um, being so completely uh, detached from free market realities. Is there a realistic way that that, that can be achieved, um, that they do get accountable to the free market instead of the government? Yeah, uh, look, I, I really don't know. Um, it's good to call them out, but I, um, I don't have an answer for you. Sorry. That's okay. We uh, super appreciate yeah, your... Uh, sorry, continue, please. No, I just want to say, you know, it's good. we're lucky that we've got this freedom that we can criticise them. So right. I wouldn't yeah. want to see that. Right. And that's one of the things I celebrated on Australia Day, uh, the, the freedom to live in a country, the, the, the treasure. It's not just a freedom. It, it's actually an asset. It's a miracle. Of living in a nation where we can criticise the government uh, and we can not be afraid of the police knocking on our door just yet. Um, uh, Kurt, um, your article posted today about the the lack of free press um, coming to the West uh, rapidly, like uh, journalists being arrested, citizen journalists being arrested in, in China was, was insightful. But at this stage, it's still one of the things we can celebrate uh, about Australia is that we have this this freedom where we can criticise the press and criticise the ABC and criticise the government and, and and not be negative. I'm not saying criticism's a, a job in itself, but to critically analyse, uh, review and um, 
hold to account uh, those people and powerful institutions, uh, not just the government, but certainly the media in Australia is uh, very important. And Anthony, I really appreciate the writing you do uh, as, a, as a leading voice among Indigenous Australians. I know there's many who think like you and, and would be encouraged by the fact that you echoed their voices while so many in the media would represent Indigenous people as a homogenous bunch of complaining infants. Um, so thank you for your voice because uh, you're providing a, a much uh, more flattering uh, view of uh, right-thinking people in Australia. And uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. We will see you soon. Now, Kurt, do you want to tell us a little bit more about wait, your I article? Go. On... Wait, wait, Sorry? I gotta go. I you got to go? go. I Ellie, go. I was counting on you being here all night. Probably something I, I said. I, I'm inhabiting somebody else's faith and I'm getting text messages like, can you leave, please? I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the vibrating we heard. <laughs> Very good. That is, that is exactly what you heard. That was a sibling going, get out of my room, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and you look, a final plea as we say goodbye to Ellie, please uh, donate to her Kofi account. The link is beneath her articles on The Good Source. And uh, she needs to be able to get her own room so she can do a whole live stream without getting booted. Uh, we have found the vampire cave a little bit further. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you, Ellie. It's uh, wonderful uh, chatting with you and hearing your articulate thoughts on everything. Right thinking queen of Twitter, Alexandra Marshall. Good night. Good night. See you boys later. Bye. See you, Ellie. Great to see you. And then there were three. <laughs> uh, so good. Uh, Damien, what else was in your show this morning that people need to go and uh, have a look at? On, um, uh, gosh, I think and try and remember now. Um, what else was in the show? Uh, well, we had, um, yeah, as I said, we had Jacinda Price uh, and Warren Mundine, that clip. That was actually recorded back in August. But um, if you didn't see it, uh, it really is a terrific um terrific uh, interview and great explanation of Warren Mundine's paper that he wrote for the uh, Centre for Independent Studies on um, building the Aboriginal economies um, and how remote economies in some way uh, and using the funding to support the development of business and um, meaningful, you know, work uh, for people um, and viable communities that, that are going to get out of these sort of uh, perpetual yep. um, problems that we're seeing. Yeah. Um, we also, um, uh, we had a look, we, we have a very funny comedian. Uh, we're having a look uh, at every week now. We're going to be doing a little spot at the end where we... That's a uh, new segment for you, some, isn't it? That was yeah, actually funny. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, you've got to laugh. You need a laugh after all. It's a crazy world. So we've got Laughing is good. Um, and uh, laughing is excellent. So... Uh, we we uh, we're going to be finishing off with a uh, you know usually sort of comedian that might be uh, considered to be uh, um, a little uh, centre um, away from the sort of typical left wing comedy that we're bombarded with uh, because there's plenty of great right wing comedy out there believe me uh, and great yeah. um, centrist anti sort of woke anti um, political correctness um, uh, but good good clean fun sensible smart intelligent comedy yeah. so we're trying to f focus on that. Um, there's also a little bit of a clip um, from uh, Candace Owens' show uh, this week. Uh, we took the clip out of that. That's a really um, amazing interview with a comedian 
that she does. Um, talking Do you get about uh, copyright notices, infringement on the little clips that you show? Um, no, I hope not. We're really just um, promoting, you know, and showing a little bit of these this content to sort of say, you know, this is out there. Go and have go and check it out. Um, and we have yep. the link. So the show is meant to be kind of a a way to, you know, it's a summary of of the stuff that we 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 find we see, and uh, we just give you a taste of it, and then put the link in so you can go and watch the full thing. But um, yep. we haven't had any complaints yet. Um, I think people are happy for the for the ecosystem to have that. Uh, but if anybody. Does have an I, issue. Um, I played a, we'll stop promoting you. <laughs> I, I played a a YouTube a little YouTube clip um, at the end of my show on Tuesday from the Seekers. I am you are we are Australian and yeah, they oh, similar. Yeah. It's not a striker. Yeah, that's different. Yeah, the music copyright is a very different thing. Um, but yes, you can only have, any time that I've put in seven seconds of. Uh, I think I put in seven seconds of an ACDC song once, and yes, I got copyright flagged on that. So yeah. having, it, it must be automated and very effective. Um, yeah, so we, we uh, a little clip from from that, and there's also uh, Douglas Murray's done a fantastic five minute. Uh, I don't know if anybody oh, yeah. knows Prager U, uh, but Prager U is the organization in America set fantastic up by videos. yeah the talk the talk show host uh, Dennis Prager. Thank God he set this up to counter the bombardment from the likes of Vox and mm. uh, um, trying to remember the name of the other one now, Buzzfeed. the other huge, sorry, BuzzFeed, Buzzfeed. thank you. Um, and these guys who are just, uh, now this is another one, they're just constantly pumping out, now this, right, um, yeah. you know, uh, sort of identity politics type um, propaganda theory, propaganda to our kids in university yeah. age. And Dennis Prager wanted to reach kids with these videos and they've just taken off they've just exploded so um yeah. there are many many up they've been running for a few years now and there's lots of great videos and he gets in very intelligent people say oh it's not a university why is it called breaky you it's not a real university no it's not <laughs> meant to be a real university nobody said it was Since a real when university. did lefties care about definitions or reality <laughs> <laughs> so um it's it's basically uh the people he gets on is what's important right and yeah. they're, they're they're able to put on a five minute and they don't do these very lightly they they only do 52 a year, um, and there are lots of topics they could be covering. They select very carefully the topics. They work with the academics or the writers behind those topics. They only bring out the very best experts, and they take their theories and put them into a five-minute animated video and have them presented. Uh, and Douglas Murray's done a terrific one this week about cancel culture and canceling history, which I thought yep. was incredibly timely. It came out on Australia Day morning, so I don't know whether yeah. they were thinking about Australia when they put it out, but it definitely... No. Uh, definitely had an impact. Um, well, my guests right now are Kurt Marlberg and Damien Curie. Um, for those people who are wanting how to spell Damien's last name, it's C-O-O-R-Y. And Kurt is K-U-R-T. Uh, Marlberg, uh, well, M-A-H-L-B-U-R-G. Well done. Uh, so uh, oh, it's it's a very distinguished Kurt. If I was ever going to change my name, um, <laughs> I'd, I'd take... No, I wouldn't change my name. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. Uh, and uh, look, for, for those who missed the announcement um, earlier in the show, nearly an hour ago, um, Pauline Hansen, Senator Pauline Hansen, uh, has had to give her apologies. Uh, last minute uh, change of plans for her has, has come up tonight. And uh, we appreciate her being available ever and so certainly need to be gracious and understanding um, when uh, the sudden life of a senator and a federal party leader um, means that she, uh, uh, you know, can't come on as as we advertised. But uh, we promise we will get her on as soon as possible, maybe next week or 
or the week after. Um, I really want to have a chat to Pauline amongst other things uh, about the family law court, uh, things that are being handed down. But also we have a important election coming up in Western Australia. The Western Australian state election is on the 13th of March. That's just two weeks after the most important event in the Australian calendar this year, the Australian Church and State Summit, which will be held in Brisbane and Hobart as well as online. So there's no excuse for missing out. Uh, let me see. I think we've got a little banner there. The churchandstate.com.au is where you can get your tickets. That is a specifically Christian conference which with lots of Christian speakers, but it's not exclusive to Christians. Everybody is welcome. Uh, and we will be just teaching that Christians have a valid, credible, and necessary place in the public square. Uh, we'll be talking about policies and um, and comparing uh, the, the the history of various ideologies, uh, which have led to different levels of human flourishing uh, in in world history, and uh, human hi uh, Christian contributions to that have scored very very well and and so we have a valid place in in debate uh, of course um, but the west australian election is two weeks after that and um, that is the 13th of march so we're going to be trying to bring on quite a few west australian politicians and commentators uh, over the next uh, six weeks as we lead up to the wa election um, and um, pauline hansen will be a great part of that conversation as well as uh, some people who are local. Um, so if you're a uh, sand groper across there on the other side of the country, which is still part of Australia, um, much to do despite some, some efforts, uh, it would be good to uh, hear from you. Who do you think, uh, where are the battleground seats? Uh, where are the, what are the key issues facing West Australians? And then of course, on the evening of the 13th of March, we will be holding an election night coverage panel um, here on The Good Source. So make sure you stay tuned to and look out for that. Well, boys, uh, any suggestions? Where should we go? Let's uh, start bringing this home, maybe wrap it up in the next five to 15 minutes uh, um, or to the viewers. Um, also, are there any topics, questions we should talk about with you guys um, before we wrap up? not Q&A for this second episode of 2021. Um, Damien, Kurt, uh, final issue for the night. We can take a quick look at the article. I, I know you segued into it earlier and then we got sidetracked, uh, I think, when people were leaving. So um, we can do that if you like or if you'd rather wrap up, that's, that's fine. Was that the article you wrote about um, the free media and China? That's right, yeah. Yeah, please. That, that's that's a great one. Anything's good. I just like talking to you. Great. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, so this one was just published today. I wrote it a couple of weeks ago, but uh, it, it essentially is... A, what was that? Sorry? Shh, don't tell people you wrote it a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> and in any case, uh, I, essentially I've tried to aggregate a whole series of uh, stories that came out last year and they, I guess they sort of leaked out eventually, but they weren't on front page, you know, of newspapers because they're very embarrassing for the mainstream media. Um, one person after another, most of them 
you know, really well-profiled uh, journalists working for major news outlets uh, were essentially ousted in one form in one form or another, whether that was them losing their jobs, uh, being sacked, uh, quitting. Um, so Matt Taibbi is one of those. And for, for people that are familiar with this whole area of, of uh, journalistic censorship, these names may be familiar. Uh, but I'll just give the names to you in case you're not because they're worth looking up, each of these stories. Matt Taibbi um, of the Rolling of Rolling Stone magazine, James Bennett of the New York Times. Uh, there was also uh, who do we have? Um, Barry Weiss, also from the New York Times. Andrew Sullivan from the New Yorker magazine, uh, and Glenn Greenwald as well. Uh, and then I also went into uh, J.K. Rowling, and she joined with 160 others, um, journalists and academics who wrote the uh, Harper letter, which um, made made headline news last year as well. And essentially it's one story after the next of people from very well-known, very reputable, well, supposedly reputable uh, journalistic outlets who mm. were uh, sacked or who quit um, because essentially they had ideas that in, in almost every case were actually left of centre but did not fit in with the woke orthodoxy and they were made to feel uh, as though they had no place um, in, in the particular, uh, you know, journalistic outlets they were working for and, and parted ways. And to me, that um, really summarised 2020 in so many ways. And I think seeing all of those stories one after the other is really quite shocking to, to realise what developed in such a short space of time over the last 12 months. Yeah, it's terrifying. I think, um, you know, I, I often talk about how I've just come home after 20 years abroad and uh, the shock, the culture shock or the reverse culture shock that, that, uh, that I have experienced since coming home really hit me on the 26th of January. Um, it's mm. the first time that I've seen an Australia Day or been here for an Australia Day in 20 years and I couldn't believe the, uh, the, the, the lack of goodwill and the lack of spirit um, expressed by so many people that were protesting. It just doesn't doesn't seem to me to be... Uh, my concern about changing the date is that if we change the date, is it going to make any difference to the protests? Mm -hmm. uh, because the 26th doesn't really represent the invasion um, because they arrived on the between the 18th and the 20th, actually, uh, in Botany Bay and then couldn't find water, so moved to Sydney Cove, as the story goes, planted the flag on the 26th. Um, but I don't know that there was any significant battle um, on that particular date. So is it that is it the date or is it that we're using Invasion Day? Um, or the, it's a proxy for the existence of Australia altogether that they object yeah. to. Yeah, so, so it would be, wouldn't matter when you had Australia Day, you'd still exactly. have this Invasion Day uh, yeah. mentality happening. So I don't see any point in moving the date. I get where people are coming from if it's very hurtful to the Aboriginal people uh, to, to reflect not. on that. But let's it's talk about something else and make it... It is. Let's make it about something else because it's not yeah, about Yeah, it's, it's and, such and a... Look, I, I get that some people are feeling hurt, but you know what? The world revolves around you. Like, mm. like I, And I don't mean to be callous, but the, the most callous thing I could do, the most hateful thing I could do would be to leave you in ignorance and error. Right. And, and yeah. that, would be, that would be hateful. For me to not tell you you're, you're wrong... Um, would be silly. I'm not going to use poorly chosen words, and I'm trying to choose them carefully, but the date is not hurtful. Uh, here's the reality. There is not a single civilization on the face of the planet that hasn't been through what you're claiming you can't get past. Mm. 
Uh, my ancestors were taken slaves off the coast of Cornwall in England. Uh, Thomas Pellow, there's a book written about it. He was literally taken a slave and held captive from the age of 13. And, you know, anyway, the book's really interesting. Good read, get it on Amazon. Uh, but uh, my, my Scottish ancestors were dispossessed and disinherited by the British as well. Uh, and, and if you've lived in Europe, your nation has changed hands at least half a dozen times in the last thousand years. Uh, this is the nature of human history. There's not a single person who can't claim to have ancestral trauma that was experienced in Australia. Uh, and this is the nature of, of the world. And in fact, um, the, the claims that it was white man's fault, well, that's just racist. That's ignorant of the fact that the hundreds of tribes that inhabited this continent uh, before colonization were constantly warring with and invading each other. It was an incredibly violent time uh, in a culture that was stuck in the Stone Age due to the tyranny of distance, and, and that's a horrible thing. And that doesn't absolve uh, the, the settlers and, and those people who were criminal and immoral in their actions toward Indigenous people in those times. It doesn't whitewash the fact that those things did happen as well as the good. Uh, but, you know, we just have to get a little bit of perspective and Australia Day is not Invasion Day. Uh, uh, Australia Day is the day where we celebrate the things that we have in common. There are plenty of really great times and wise moments to reflect and, and lament on the things that we did wrong uh, historically and currently. Let's not just lament about the things which are race-based and wrong. Let's lament about the things that are age-based and wrong, like abortion. You know, we've got a lot of blood on our hands in this nation, uh, and to to cherry-pick the things that that help um, exacerbate a, a racist narrative uh, and politic of grievance divisionism, that's that's just playing into the Marxist handbook. And it's pure racism in itself. So, no, we're not exceptional you, in our history. Do you think people are waking up, guys? Do you think finally we're starting to see some change? I mean, it just, we've been singing this song for, and I've heard others singing this song for many years. Um, you know, it, surely people are starting to wake up more and more and more that what we're witnessing here is just deliberate, uh, the mm. deliberate politics of division on many mm. different levels, playing of out course. in many different, different areas. Um, it's just you cannot have uh, power if you don't create division. That's the way the left sees it. They, they. I mean, there's the extreme left, the Marxists, who really want the revolution, right? So they're still, you know, stuck in that craziness of uh, of of twenty nineteenth and twentieth century Marxist theory of, you know, needing to have a revolution, um, yeah. and always wanting to create disunity, which is why you had Antifa people at the Capitol building and all that stuff, um, yeah. and you'll always have people agitating at different protests. But then you have another group who are, you know, not quite as extreme, but they're they're just as rigidly, obsessively holding on to this idea that racism is real and that somewhere out there is a mean bogeyman. And if we could just kill that mean bogeyman, uh, oh, it's those nasty right wing people. You know, if we could just get rid of them, then everything's going to be better. Um, yeah. And that that worries me a lot because I think it's led to the change of government in the United States, which I think is is pretty scary. Um, yep. 
and and that we're heading for you know because I look at policy not personality so I'm more interested in what they're doing than what they how they look or how old they are or how yeah. crazy they are um, we're all a little bit nutty uh, but um, you know it's it's the I'm really well, terrified there's, there's a whole article there's a whole article there Damien <laughs> yeah, yeah personality not policy yeah, exactly. Sorry, sorry um, to interrupt your flow. You're in a flow there. There we go. No, no. Keep I just, going. I just wanted to put it out there as a, you know, as a maybe a final talking point. Well, let, let me let me pick you know, that. Shall we discuss. That up, um, uh, are we in this world? Are we at a, a horrible moment where we're seeing um, just this clinging to victimhood? You know, my victim points are very important to me. I mean, the, people aren't going to change their mind. They're just going to, you know, they listen to people like Tony. They listen to Cinder Price. You listen to Warren Mundine. They just yeah. say, oh well, they're just, you know, they're just uh, right wing. Um, you know, horrible right wingers who who, who, uh, who don't understand the real average and they're racist themselves, and all you mm. white people talking about you're all racist and everybody's racist. And you know, the reality is racism is not the problem. Racism is not the root of these problems. So, and and we're never going to get rid of racists, just like we're never going to get rid of drunks, no, sadly, and not. wife beaters, and and uh, you know, selfish people and greedy people. You know, if, it's humanity. It's broken. It's corrupted, and it's fallible. And cultural pressure and evolution and maturity is the way to solve these things. Not big stick legislation. Obviously, uh, some of the things I said are, are violent crimes, and they should absolutely be um, made illegal. But um, you know, bad character, uh, really bad character. I mean, total jerks are not something that you can outlaw. Uh, because you're never going to get rid of them and you're not going to change them with punitive measures. Uh, what you are going to change them with is better examples and peer pressure um, and, and a stigma. There should be a stigma on racism. There absolutely should be a stigma on racism. And it's a disservice to the power of the stigma to call everybody a racist because now you're just destigmatizing racism by calling somebody who believes in sensible immigration policies a racist. I mean, that's just ridiculous. You're doing a disservice to the people who want to legitimately identify and call out um, and stigmatise a, a racist, a real racist, somebody who believes in their own superiority. Uh, and another example of badly labelling racism is tribalism, the natural inclination to trust people who look, talk and sound yeah. like ourselves um that's a, that's, that's a natural psychological natural fact yeah that's of proven course. by science and, and any really... any strength any good thing to an extreme becomes a bad thing um yeah. you know a, a little alcohol a, a bottle of wine with dinner amongst a couple of friends great but if it's 10 bottles of wine each with a hamburger you know that's a good thing that's gone way too far um and, and so it's not it's your recommended speed. diet david not my recommended diet and also not on the menu at McDonald's. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, calling calling a, a natural thing, like just wanting to do business with, business with somebody like yourself, uh, racism is just silly. That's not racism. Racism is hatred and, and a look, identity politics is a whole lot more closer to racism than, um, than tribalism, some, some of the more innocent expressions of that let's wrap this up and and bring it home 
Um, actually, look, I want to con contradict you, Vesna. I love some of your comments, but I think this one's wrong. The only type of, type of racism in Australia today is reverse racism. No, like I said, jerks are jerks. They exist everywhere. Um, your point is probably that um, reverse racism is a lot more acceptable uh, and, and um, you know, there's no stigma attached to that. Um, well, that's probably a fair call. Um, but there's plenty of racism and, and they should be called out and stigmatised, the genuine, authentic kinds. Any other th thoughts from you guys before we uh, bring this home? I guess just bouncing off of what Damien was saying uh, earlier, just uh, are people waking up? I think that I think it's true that people are waking up. The events of last year, in particular, um, ha have to have gone a long way in in helping people realise that something isn't quite right. And I realise a lot of that was centred around the pandemic, and unfortunately, that's led to um, you know some conspiracy theories and and whatever. But what it's done, I think, as well as it's prompted people to be just a little bit more engaged in what is happening in the political sphere, what's happening in the social sphere. Um, words like globalism, words like Marxism have become a lot more understood and, uh, and uh, are becoming a helpful lens through which to view a lot of the changes that we're seeing. And so, uh, yes, we've got a growing uh, voice on, on the far left, um, as you were talking about earlier, Damien. Uh, but I think people are becoming a bit more willing to speak up when they don't agree with the current orthodoxy. Um, I know for myself, I've realised that there's a lot of people I can't win over anymore. And so uh, I've sort of given up trying to pander. That doesn't mean I'm not trying to be polite anymore, but I've realised there are certain people I'll never please and so I'm willing to say more, I'm willing to push a bit harder and I've noticed that that's the case with a lot of others too. And so I think people are waking up and I think people are voicing that um, and in a healthy way. Yeah. My, my final comment, David, would just be um, to, to echo what Kurt said. I think um, Dave Rubin's book, um, uh, Don't Burn This Book, uh, is interesting because rather than just sort of repeat the stuff that we've read from other authors on this, like Douglas Murray, he takes mm. the position that we all need to start speaking out more and that the silent majority can't continue to be silent. So that's why I do what I do. I could, you know, happily not put out that show every week. <laughs> it's pretty exhausting. Um, yeah. Help from you guys and, and Matt and everything. But, uh, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, we do this because we care um, and we're doing it because we believe that these things need to be said because they're not being said in the mainstream media and the public discourse isn't balanced. And yeah. that's, that's why, why we're doing it. And I think that's, it's a call to action to, to people to really get behind platforms like The Good Source, platforms like Discernible, platforms mm. like books and, and, and publications like Kurtz and following Ellie and, and, and me and whoever um, is really trying to kind of get this going because we need... Uh, we all, you know, uh, uh, are doing this pretty, uh, pretty unfunded. So we need. Let's, we need uh, the... let's give a shout out to Matt at Discernible, um, which is where your podcast is also hosted. Um, where can people find some of the content on Discernible? Um, well, Discernible is um, discernable, not discernible. There's uh, two spellings of that word I've, I discovered. So, uh, but it's actually discernable. Um, and it's .io, which is an unusual suffix um, uh, for the internet, yeah. but it's www.discernible.io. So I think .io is a bit of a geek suffix. It's got to do with ones and zeros and things, and that's a bit of a geek. There we go, yeah. So I'll pay for that content <laughs> later. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, Don't what you're thinking there, Matt. Just, people, we need your support. Keep, keep things going. Keep sharing, 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 yeah. telling your friends. And I think eventually we'll be the mainstream media. It's happening in America. Um, it's it's uh, 
it's happening fast, but you know, they're now into battle number two, which is the big tech battle. Um, we're yep. still doing battle number one. So, yeah. Well, my final plug for tonight is uh, the Church and State Summit. Uh, it's the fourth annual uh, summit, and I'd really love to have everybody there. Now, it actually does take quite a lot of uh, time, planning, and money to put it on. So even if you're going to watch it online, there's going to be a, a small ticket fee to get in and, and buy it. They are exclusive. You, They won't be free to the public. Uh, in fact, there's a, quite a lot of people who are paying um, for their tickets full price to be there in person and then making a generous donation on the top. So let me encourage you to, to do that. We're going to have venues in Brisbane and Hobart uh, and they'll all be COVID safe and, and everything's uh, going to be, you know, uh, but, you know, if you're the first on, you'll be the last off um, if you're buying those tickets. You don't want to miss out. You do want to be there. We've got Cardinal George Pell speaking via vi video from Rome, including taking questions. Uh, we're going to have um, some apolo Christian apologists, Christian people explaining uh, why Christianity is true. Um, and uh, Carl Fay's um, Matt Canavan going to be explaining why Christianity is good. Uh, and then Saturday's uh, sessions are all going to be uh, about some meaty policy discussions for uh, for our nation and, and how we can actually improve policy. But the best thing is to get there and rub shoulders with people like you and, and just be encouraged how not alone you are, how many of us there are who are in the trenches fighting the culture war and uh, wanting to be salt and light in the public square. Um, so everybody's welcome, but it is a Christian conference. So uh, please, if you can, make sure you spread the word and grab your tickets now. Uh, early bird price is still on for the next week or so, but they are selling out fast. And of course, if we do have to reduce numbers, then the people who bought their tickets last uh, will probably be the first people who get a refund. And, and you will be safe if we have to change capacity numbers um, you will definitely be getting your money back so there's no risk there whatsoever and i believe we're going to be able to have a, a, a good couple of hundred in in each location well thank you very much gentlemen for your time tonight very generous always great and uh, this show good sources not q a um, is primarily evolving this year to regularly feature the contributors and personalities of the good source platform um, as well as special guests uh, from time to time. So thank you, the viewers, for watching. Uh, thank you very much for your comments and for sharing it and for, of course, to the Good Source supporters who so faithfully and regularly um, put their hand in their pocket for a little or a lot each month and just make sure we're able to do things like build this studio and, and get the equipment we need to continually increase our quality of production and content uh, and and so we do have the capacity in the near future to really disrupt the lying harlot mainstream media, uh, which absolutely must be taken down. We can't trust government to do it. We have to do it ourselves. Uh, so that's it from me. Um, thank you very much um, to you guys, and we will see you all uh, on the interwebs. Good night. Thanks, Good night. Dave. Bye, bro. Uh